everybody, welcome to episode 10 of Literary Disco, the young adult edition. Uh, we will begin today with a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelf to discuss. And then we will be joined by the young adult librarian, Erica Jelinek, who selected a book for us to read after she heard a previous episode in which I flippantly declared this generation of young adult writers to be incredibly unimaginative. Something you'd never do again, by the way. Something I would no, never do. No. I would never you'd make never a... make a sweeping generalization. Never. No. <laughs> so Erica joins us to talk uh, YA books in general and the novel When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead. Uh, I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome to the disco, guys. Hello. Hello. Um, so who wants to go first in the bookshelf? You go first, Ryder. Uh, my book today is a, um, I, I chose, I decided for bookshelf for visit because I feel like a lot of times we try and, you know, tackle big subjects or serious stuff. I decided to just pick the funnest book I had read in a long time. Uh, and this was a book that uh, I usually take notes and you know when I'm when I'm reading anything, even when I'm reading just for fun, I'm I'm constantly underlining passages or whatever. And this book I um, borrowed from my brother, and he can't stand when I mark up his books. <laughs> so uh, I realized after about th two pages into the book that I had been marking it up, and I like had to stop and just be like, nope, I'm just gonna read this book and you know not think about it critically and just enjoy it. And it ended up being like one of the most pleasurable reading experiences I've had in a long time. It's a book called City of Thieves by David Benioff. And um, he's a screenwriter. I, he wrote the Wolverine movie, which I haven't seen, which I've heard is horrible. Um, but this book reads like a movie. And it is so much fun. And it's, it's, a, it's a very cinematic, it's fast moving, there's a lot of plot. But it's actually pretty, uh, it captures a really weird uh, historical moment. It's, it's set in the Siege of Leningrad. Uh, and so it's really depressing and it begins with the characters starving um and i guess it's based on at least you know the sort of fictional construction of it and i think this is true is that it's based on david benioff's grandfather who actually experienced something in world war ii close to this but it's so much fun and um anyway it's a good summer read even though it takes place in the freezing temperatures of russia during World War II. It's a really fun summer read, and I highly recommend it to anybody who just wants to burn through a fun book. He has a really good collection of short stories called uh, When the Nines Roll Over. Um, and also, he, of course, he wrote the book The 25th Hour, which became the movie The 25th Hour, also. Um, but he's a really good fiction writer, and it's sort of disgusting because he's also a really good screenwriter, uh, at least for Game of Thrones right now. He, he's done a, a ton of uh, adaptations of, of stuff, too. He wrote Troy. Wait, he's a, one of the writers on Game he's of Thrones? He's the executive producer and writer of Game of Thrones. Oh. Um, but he wrote... I didn't know that. That he wrote makes sense. He's great. Troy, and he wrote, um, he wrote Wolverine. He's written a bunch of stuff. He wrote Troy? That's yeah. unfortunate. Um, he's he's oh. a... And Wolverine, these are not good endorsements. I know. <laughs> Go back to Game of Thrones. Uh, but Game of Thrones is his is his baby. Um, I think he's. I think he might have even brought the project to uh, to HBO. But he's a good writer, a good dude. Yeah, he's a really good writer. I mean, that's what I'm just impressed by somebody who is writing something that's so plot driven, but then has genuine characters, and I care about mm -hmm. them. And you know, and the prose is good. Like it's he's a good writer. It's really fun. Um, but you know, it's still like, you know, World War Two sort of running around through the snow and hiding from Nazis and Ooh. stuff. So it still has this pulpy quality. 
But um, the the storyline is 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 great. It's actually it's this guy, this kid who um, gets caught stealing, and um, he gets paired up with a soldier who's gone AWOL or whatever, and they get sent on this mission to get eggs for some general who wants eggs for a cake for his daughter's mm-hmm. birthday or daughter's wedding or whatever. So it's this, like, weird mission that they have to go on uh, to find eggs, you know? So it has this sort of catch-22 absurdist war thing, you know, behind it. Uh, but then it just becomes this exciting, thrilling, you know... It sounds vaguely sounds like awesome. a wonderful book I read called Forward Gunner Ash. <laughs> it does. It does sound like Forward Gunner Ash. Well, I'm glad you recommended that writer because I just feel like every time I read some huge... Sometimes I just want a palate cleanser mm-hmm. book, totally. you know, but I don't want to be ashamed of it. Um, and that sounds like yeah. a good one. Well, I have the ultimate palate cleanser, actually. So, um, I don't know about you guys, but I have been watching the Olympics pretty much from dawn until dawn every single day since they started. Yeah, that's what you jobless writer types Uh, I I have a job. I just haven't been going. I've been very ill. Very, very ill. Uh, Ebola and uh, ulcers in my my feet. I have Olympic fever. So, and the thing about the Olympics is... um, you know, if you're watching on NBC, it's tape delayed by like 57 hours. So everything that is on yes. there is for is foretold. <gasps> Every time Ryan Seacrest comes on to interview an athlete, a disabled orphan is beaten to death. That's my belief. <laughs> that that's the code to beat up a disabled orphan. At any rate, so I've been watching the Olympics. That doesn't even make any I'm sense. I'm just telling you it's bad. Why does a, a, a disabled orphan get beaten? Just like, like the that? worst possible thing that could happen. A disabled orphan is beaten. Because he's but so isn't awful. Ryan, yeah, isn't Ryan Seacrest doing this Olympic stuff already the worst possible thing it that It is. Happen? It truly is. He's horrible. <laughs> the other so night he was on... Ex- yeah, exactly. The other night he was on explaining how the internet works, and I just about took a shit on top of my TV set. I was just like, you know what? That's it. I'm now going to defecate on my flat screen television. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. That doesn't about. make sense either. <laughs> Nothing you say makes sense anymore, Ted. It's like the vague idea is right, but then when you actually think it through, you're like... How does that punish anyone but yourself? Look, I, I'm not going to pretend screen. that I'm not self-hating these moments because I'm still watching them. So uh, I've been watching the, the, the Olympics, and I've been enjoying the spectacle, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, all that. Um, and so I haven't been reading any books. But what I have been thinking about is how it used to be that right after the Olympics, the star Olympic athletes would suddenly get to become movie stars. Specifically for a brief period of time in the 1980s, American male gymnasts there are two films that's right there was a movie about a gymnast what wasn't there there are two about? films i remember going to the movie <laughs> there theater are two and... of the worst films ever made that came out right after the 1984 olympics starring gold medal olympians the first um and at, at i thought that maybe i had dreamt this but i hadn't the first <laughs> is a Do you often dream of male gymnasts? I do. (laughs) The first is a movie called Gymkata. 
No. Yes. Um, and I will read to you the plot synopsis here uh, provided by IMDb. This isn't in any way ever going to link back to a book, is it? No. No. This is just... <laughs> in 1985, Jim came out. And here's the basic premise for Jim Jonathan Cabot is a champion gymnast in the tiny yet savage country of Parmistan. Apparently a country very big on cheese. (laughs) (laughs) There is a perfect spot for a, quote, Star Wars site, which for those of you born after the 1980s was uh, a missile defense system. For the U.S. to get this site, they must compete in the brutal, quote, game. The government calls on Cabot, the son of a former operative, to win the game. Cabot must combine his gymnastic skills of the West with the fighting secrets of the East and form Gymkata. So it's gymnastics and karate combined? Yeah, like, that's that correct. sounds amazing. I don't understand that's, what I your know. objection is. And it stars uh, Olympic <laughs> Everything gymnast. Everything about this is perfect. <laughs> it stars Olympic gymnast Kurt Thomas as Jonathan Cabot. Um, and if you go on the internet, and I'll, I'll put this on our Facebook, there is a, um, there's a clip of Kurt Thomas fighting an entire village of savage men all holding spears by doing a combination of the pommel horse and karate on them. And there are something like a hundred villagers with spears and he pommel horse karate's them to death. That sounds awesome. So Jim Cotta, surprisingly, was not an enormous hit. I think the American public at the time was not ready to look at their Olympic heroes as warriors uh, taking on entire villages of semi-East Asian people um, in a terrible sport of um, both gymnastics and karate. So the next natural evolution then, of course, was the love story. And that gets us to 1986's American Anthem, starring U.S. Olympic gold medalist mitch gaylord let me uh let me give you a little rundown on american anthem if i, I can. think this is the one i saw i i'm sure it is steve is a talented gymnast who's given up competition and is working for his father's bike shop julie is the new girl at his old gym who has moved to town to train with their powerful coach mm. inspired by julie steve resumes training while dealing with the conflicts in their personal lives and the stress of training they prefer, they prepare for the olympic trials and what's not written here on IMDb is, and then they fall in love. Here's what, here's, what, here's what I remember, and you tell me if this is a scene from the movie. Okay. Is there a scene where he's training in the woods? Yes. Doing a high yes. bar, like on a tree branch? Yes. It's yes. like the most absurd yes. thing in the world. Yes. It's like his training for the Olympics moment, and he's doing it in the woods. And he's yes. like, dun, that, dun, and he's like grabbing a, a tree branch or that builds happens. his own. Oh my God, it's so stupid. Uh, I remember seeing that in the theater when I was a kid. That's pro- oh, Yeah, that, that happens. I saw this movie in the theater also for reasons totally unbeknownst to me. And... Uh, the thing about both these, that the, both these movies have in common is the following. Mitch Gaylord and Kurt Thomas, it turns out, are fantastic gymnasts. They are not, however, actors. <laughs> and it is yeah. some of the worst acting this side of the miniseries The Pillars of the Earth, which we will get to at a later date. Hey. Yeah, save it. And I am sort of... I, I always just wonder, who who's sitting in... a 
you know, a development meeting and saying, you know what we need to do? We need to take that five foot four guy who can swing around on some shit and put him in a movie. That's going to be a hit. Here's the question, though. I mean, is it really so wrong? I mean, obviously, this movie is horrible from an acting point of view, but maybe some people just want to watch gymnastics in a narrative form. Really, the only experience we get with these insane physical skills is in an Olympic arena. I mean, why not? They have step up for great dancers. Nobody pretends those are about anything but the fucking really cool dancing. And what about the cutting edge, Todd? Don't you Uh, love the cutting edge? Isn't that the exact same thing but in the winter Olympics arena? Um, The cutting edge is a primordial story of what it takes to be a champion. But also, the the cutting edge was starring real actors, by the way. And starring real actors. actors. And awesome. And if you ever, ever (laughs) compare the cutting edge to any of those movies again, Julia, our time together is over. Okay. All right. I'm just saying. You can compare the cutting edge to Schindler's List. You can compare the cutting edge to um, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Um, Star Citizen Wars. Kane. You you are allowed to compare the cutting edge with perhaps the greatest cheerleading movie ever, which would be Bring It On, which is yes. a fantastic. Again, they film. cast real actors and then had the actors do something athletic or right. you know, or and had the most infectious cheer ever, which I'd like to recreate for you all oh, now if I yeah, could. Yeah, I can do Burr. it. Too. It's cold in here. There, there must be some Toros in the atmosphere. atmosphere. I said burr. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Bold. Hard to follow, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, okay, so this requires a little backstory. So I, uh, I am not a wealthy woman, but I am aspirationally cool. So Greg and I are... <laughs> are in a whiskey tasting club which is an experience i highly recommend for i have told you about it i think Ryder, because you would love it yeah oh yeah because Um, i want to be in it so bad yeah so well i mean you can create your own but uh basically they call it being an alcoholic i know that would just turn so dark (laughs) with me like it would (laughs) yeah this is this is with a lot of people have a lot of self-control and class so right. oh. I'm um, lacking those. Yeah. Both those yeah. Things, so. I sort of invited myself in, which sort of answers the classlessness question for myself. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> the way that it works is uh, everybody pitches in five, uh, 10 bucks. It, we meet once a month and then there's maybe like 20 of us in it. So that's a lot of money in which to buy two or three really nice bottles of whiskey or more. I mean, we buy a couple of each kind. So usually they're between like, you know, 40 to $80 bottles of whiskey and then everyone gets a taste and then we all talk about what it tastes like and I pretend that I know and then <laughs> we hang out and eat pretzels. But, uh, this sounds like the themed. greatest club ever. Yeah. I mean, I have tons of great whiskey club stories, but anyway, there's always a theme. So this time the theme was whiskeys that great writers loved. So mm. I was very excited. Um, I had nothing to do with the theme or anything. But um, there was uh, James Joyce, I think it was Joyce, Faulkner, and Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, so we sampled their whiskeys. Is there a key party element to this whiskey club? Like at the end, do you oh all have God, sex? I wish. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, anyway, 
So we're talking about these great writers and whiskeys, and we do a little toast with a quote from each writer after everyone. I'm basically like the happiest I've ever been in my life. And then after three or four glasses of whiskey, the hosts whip out this whiskey quiz. Oh, my. So basically to a room of 20 drunk people, it was it's a whole bunch of quotes by famous writers about whiskey and a matching game. So you had to match who said what. <laughs> I had a fierceness and Olympian competitiveness came out of me. (laughs) And I I will take a picture of this and put it on our Facebook page, too, because I, like, underlined key words and context clues. Uh, Wait, so how did you do? I came in second. Oh. Devastating. That is devastating. But, um... It's okay. The person I lost to is really, really, really intelligent. So <laughs> it wasn't, it was a completely deserved. So some of these quotes are just amazing. So this is my revisit. So, do you, I mean, I can quiz you a little bit, you guys, if you want. Okay. Yeah. Do yeah. it. Right. I'm up for it. So the water was not fit to drink. To make it palatable, we had to add whiskey. By diligent effort, I learned to like it. That I learned I learned to like Ice it. Ice cube. Ice cube. He said that. No. Winston Churchill. Okay, do you want me to... I'll give you two or three, and you can pick from them. Okay. okay. Here's the first one. Too much of anything is bad, but too much of good whiskey is barely enough. That's number one. I've heard that before. All right. Second one. I just had 18 shots of whiskey. I think that's a record. Don Thomas. <laughs> That, that's right. That's correct. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yep. And, uh... <laughs> um, well done, Todd. Thank you very much. The light music of whiskey falling into a glass, an agreeable interlude. There's a hyphen in there, so I'll read it again. Oh. The light music of whiskey falling into a glass, hyphen, an agreeable interlude. Hmm. And now I have to give you one more since uh, Todd ruined that. Sorry. Um, I clearly would have won this game. If it was only that quote. Okay. I've heard the, the first one before. I'm trying to think of where I heard it, though. Okay. Um, started out on absinthe, drank a bottle of good red wine with dinner, shifted to vodka in town, and then battened it down with whiskeys and sodas until 3 a.m. Feel good today, but not like working. That's Hemingway. Yes. You're right. That's Hemingway. That's Hemingway. Okay. <laughs> so the other two, one of them was Mark Twain, and one of them was James Joyce. James Joyce was the one with the hyphen. Yeah. Mark Twain was the first yeah, one. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, you guys nice. would have done amazing on this. Um, so I had a great time, and there, yeah, there's a. Then then there was a second section with quotes from books that included whiskey, and you had to match the author and name the book. I cleaned up on that section, which makes me realize that I am better at actual books than random trivia about writers. So, it yeah. seems to me that this is opening up an opportunity for us to yeah. have a drunk game where we record ourselves no, drunk, not, quizzing each other. Do you know how bad that would be? I'm just saying, you know, maybe for our final show ever. The whiskey edition of <laughs> the whiskey no, edition. Bad idea. <laughs> All right. Stick around when we are joined by Erica Jellyneck next.
Hi, everybody. Welcome to Literary Disco. Um, this is Julia Pistel, one-third of the Literary Disco team, and I'm here with Ryder Strong, actor and filmmaker and writer. Hi, Ryder. Hello. And I'm also here with Todd, who's a... Are you a professor, Todd? What's your... Uh, I am, in fact, um, probably one of the top scholars in America. Okay. That is correct. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in terms of where I rank in the academy right. per se. Okay, just right. tell me what your title is. U.S. Give World News puts him at like number five. I think? Number fourteen. Number fourteen. I, I, I'm right above Idi Amin, um, who's now a professor at Cal State Fullerton. Okay, that's okay. enough from you. Uh, Author, critic, and writer, and person who works at a university. I with... I, I direct an MFA program, Julia. Yeah. I lead the lives of young writers. Okay, well, not, well not this one. Not and this one. Thank God. <laughs> we're also here with uh, young adult librarian Erica Jellinek. Hi, Erica. Hi, Julia. Hi, everyone. So, Erica, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got on the show today? Okay, uh, well, I am a librarian. So, basically, what I do, it depends on kind of what day of the week it is, whether I'm a uh, trying to get someone to stop watching porn on the library computer let's wow. uh, let's go into that for a minute let's uh <laughs> that really happens people go to the public yeah. library oh that's terrible. all the time all the time oh, are so we creepy. are we talking like hobos or like people that are just into watching porn around other people um generally hobos <laughs> <laughs> Is there a special porn category for hobos? Like, is there a hobo porn? <laughs> which, which, in my mind, would involve food and shelter in some way. All takes place on trains. <laughs> well, this is a great way to get into young adult literature. Now, when you were training to become a young adult librarian or just librarian in general, was there, like, one day where they were like, okay, now, Erica... We're going to talk a bit about hobos jerking off inside public libraries. Like, was that something you were prepared for? Or is that just some shit that happens? Actually, yeah. In library school, we do talk about what to do when people are caught watching porn because oh um, yeah. it happens a lot. And it is also, I mean, libraries are kind of like the last bastion of like free speech and being able yeah. to access whatever information you want. And some feel that pornography falls under that category. So, Erica, we asked you onto the show because um, Ryder made a comment on one of our earlier shows. Uh, snide comment. Very snide, as usual. Um, I don't remember what it was. Do you remember what it was? Um, you said something, because you were talking about A Wrinkle in Time, and I think Ryder said something along the lines of, why isn't there good books for kids oh, right. like that now? They just have Twilight and Harry Potter. Ooh. And that just got my hackles right up. Right. <laughs> well, number one, I want to apologize for, for Ryder Strong. Um, you know, one of the things, Erica, that we've learned in our time on Literary Disco, and I think the listeners know this too, is that if you get an episode where Ryder's been drinking... Um, <laughs> Things go wrong. There's only Things one. go wrong. There's only been one and, episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was actually um, helpful. You know, no. Things happen that we regret. And, um, and you know, we're trying to work with him and his sponsor to get him to, to not make sweeping generalizations that, uh, that cross borders. Okay, I actually, I made, I made this point in that podcast, and I'm actually going to reiterate it today Ooh, a little here bit. Because there were two points that I made, and, and then Erica posted on our website, which I totally appreciated, and she was absolutely right. 
that I hadn't read much children's literature and I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Uh, but I still have a question which stands uh, based on the reading that we did today. So I'm going to, I'll bring that up later. But uh, okay. yeah. Oh, you're just going to ominously put out that you have a question. Well, okay. We yeah. call so that we'll foreshadowing. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, let's all learn about. Literary techniques. Okay, so, um, so yeah, so before we get to the book, Erica, can you just tell us uh, why it is you chose to work uh, in young adult literature and what about that genre stands out to you? Um, Well, I should first clarify that I don't just work with young adult. I'm more like youth services in general. And so um, I think... One of the reasons I particularly really love reading good works of fiction for children or young adults is it's like visiting a former, like, mentality and way of viewing the world that, you know, to kind of hint at what this book is about is almost like kind of mental time travel um, when the voice is captured correctly. And um, I think I, I first kind of became really fixated on like differences between adult and the literature and then literature for kids like back when we were in college Julia and we used to discuss his dark materials every single week at lunch um just because <laughs> <there's>... <coughs> George, I- I'm sorry I- I'm sorry what, who's got the literary podcast oh all oh, of us right so you know what? Right. Sorry. Get out of here. We'll Go on, out. Erica. Yes. Oh, and side note, Erica and I went to school together at Skidmore, so we're, we, we love talking about our books together. Okay. Yeah. Go on. Um, but I, I think that there's so much rich material to be mined out of literature for um, teens and children, and I'm, I just always find it really fascinating to think about why an author chooses to direct their message or their story to a younger audience as an adult. Um, But also the stories are just fun. I mean, there's no denying that. And Mm -hmm. um, it's a way for me to kind of connect with young people, which is something I'm really passionate about. You know, after my whole thing, like, oh, Hobo is watching porn in the library. (laughs) The reason I got into being a librarian was because... I wanted to connect with young people with something I feel passionate about, which is books and reading and literacy. And if you can use this literature as kind of like start a dialogue with these young people, you can really make an impact in their lives. Let me ask one one question. So um, can you tell us, Erica, why this book above all others were the ones was the one you selected? And then you can just tell us. what. There were kind of like a handful that, the only way I can describe it were when I, I read them for the first time, there was something that just resonated so strongly with me that like I felt like I had just really tapped into the book. The book had really gotten me in what's, some way. And When You Reach Me is one of those books because it's, it's a very simple story. Um, it has some very the sneaky sci-fi that comes in at the end. But I think what I loved about it more than that was the kind of really, I thought, elegantly handled ways of addressing issues of class, issues of racism, of coming of age, um, growing up in what was really a pretty simple story. It's When You Reach Me by Rebecca Stead. 
And the New York Times book review says it's smart and mesmerizing, says my cover of the book. And it certainly is. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting. Like, we were talking about YA, and I think a lot of listeners out there really connect with YA. They connect with, I mean, as we said, Harry Potter, Twilight, and a lot of those books. But this book actually skews younger, right? What is this, like a fifth grade? <laughs> so yeah. This is, like, this is like a what they would call middle grade then? It's a okay. middle grade reader. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's a really good point that I did not want to miss because this isn't going to have the sophistication or length of, you know, a Harry Potter. Well, okay, so... The interesting thing for me about it, now that I think about it as a middle grade book, and I guess it wouldn't matter if it were middle grade or YA, is that it takes place in 1979, which mm-hmm. if you're 11 years old and reading it, it's like the equivalent of when I was a kid reading a book that took place in the 40s or something. Yeah, World War Two. Which is like this, you know, bizarre, unknowable time when customs were different and people drove mm-hmm. in cars that were rounded instead of squared and all this sort of stuff and <laughs> Dick Clark was alive. I, I feel like what, uh, what to me, the whole purpose of setting in a time in a, in a, as a period piece was to just remove the cell phones, the computers, mm-hmm. that the internet culture couldn't, I mean, this story is very much a New York neighborhood story. And maybe we should just talk mm-hmm. about what the story, what the, the book's about. It's about a, a young girl named Miranda. She's 12 years old. She's going to a school in New York City. She lives on the Upper East Side, Upper West Side? Upper Amst- West Side. Uh, upper West Side. Amsterdam It's in, in the 70s. And um, she lives with her her mom, who's a single parent. Um, and there's a boyfriend that her mom's dating. Uh, but mostly it's just about her sort of going to school. And then she gets a job with a couple of friends working at a deli. It's not even really a job. They just get paid in, in lunch meat. Uh, but which would be awesome. Which would be great. <laughs> but it's it, it, there is a time travel so disgusting. element. The beginning of the oh, book. I would op- love it. The book opens with uh, Miranda getting a note that tells her a little bit about the future. So we know from right from the beginning of the book that there's a a time travel element or something sort of sci-fi e maybe mystically going on. Um, but yeah, it's really just a coming of age story for most mm-hmm. of the book. I would say like you could have taken out the time travel stuff. And uh, everything about this book, I would still love. I thought I thought this book was wonderful. And to me, it actually skewed older than Harry Potter or some of the other books that I've come across in the YA category because it actually it, at twelve years old, it has issues of class, like you were saying. It has issues of race, um, and then issues of sexuality. Like these kids mm-hmm. are sort of kissing each other and discovering. You know, it, it's very accurate as to what it's like to be twelve years old. And I didn't feel like it pulled any punches. And, you know, besides swearing or whatever, this could be a book for adults, in my opinion, except for the time travel element. That that sort of plot mechanics was the only, you know, that engine was driving driving me to keep reading. But if you took that out, it could have been a, just a normal coming-of-age story for adults. Um, well, I, and I thought the time travel element was the part that I really had a problem with, actually, because right. it... it so the the main character Miranda um, is obsessed with a wrinkle in time by Madeline uh, Langle 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 Langle, which uh, we talked about at some length recently, um, in which I read when I was a kid and loved, but have very little. So she's obsessed with this book, and as it turns out, this book is about you know issues of traveling back and forth in in time as well for at least one character, um, and that was the part where I was like, oh. The author has put in basically an unneeded um, conceit 
to make it more than just what would otherwise be a normally compelling story about. I would say the mystery of the time travel is what is, for some young readers, going to keep them hooked. I think, because this is one of the books that I, I consider um, kind of the kind of book that an adult will give to a kid or read to a kid. And generally, they usually really like it. It's not the kind of book that they're probably going to walk into the library and pick by themselves. I mean, they're all reading like these weird warrior cats things and like <laughs> things that have like crazy <laughs> covers, like Star Paul's Revenge. And hmm. but um, like I've read blogs about um, teachers who have read the this book aloud to their class and said it's the they love the story, but it's the kind of subtle like continuation of mystery that keeps these young children just kind of hanging on every word. And then at the, that at the same time is how they're taking in the more adult um, narrative of- Yeah, that's age. a spoonful of sugar mm -hmm. if you take the medicine. And I think that's brilliant. I th that's, mm -hmm. that's what I love about this book. Uh, Todd, you know, when you were talking and what you were saying could have very easily been a description of Jonathan Lethem's Fortress of Solitude. Oh, that's, yes. that's true. Oh, exactly totally. the same book. Totally. It's like, oh, yeah. growing up in New York in the 70s, and then there's this supernatural element that comes into that book. But that's an adult book that I think went on way too long and did not incorporate the... I, I still love that book, by the way, but I don't think it incorporated the supernatural element as well as this book did. I feel like this mm -hmm. book, yeah. you know, really captured... I mean, obviously there's a lot more analysis and sort of... Uh, you know, intellectualizing going on in, in, in Lethem's book, but I feel yeah. like in terms of capturing the experience of being 12 years old and, and I mean, there's some really great descriptive passages in here. Like, do you remember when she talks about Absolutely. seeing the oil on the pan and she mm -hmm. just describes it as like, sometimes I can just sit and stare at stuff like that for hours and you realize like, oh, that's right. When you were a kid, you totally did that. You would just trip <laughs> out on something that nowadays you're like, it's just oil in the pan. But the fact that this author was able to tap into that was great. And Or, or she has this one, one great line where she says, the sunlight was everywhere, like a hyper kid running around trying to touch everybody. And I was like, <laughs> oh, of course a 12 year old would think of the sunlight yeah. like a hyper kid. Part of the reason I love this book so much is it puts me so much back to not the way I thought when I was 12 years old. I was so dramatic and just this way of like encountering the world. And I think it's just a really masterful like way that she captured that. Yeah, she's always, yeah. the Miranda as a character is always running up against the adult perspective and sort of battling mm -hmm. with it. It's like, and she's, you know, she mm -hmm. has these great moments where she says, she realizes, oh, this is how my mom sees the world and this is how I see the world mm -hmm. and this is how we sometimes see the world the same way. And it's like a constant epiphanies that I do remember having where you suddenly are like, mm -hmm. oh, my apartment is kind of crappy and we live in a poor situation <laughs> yeah, or whatever. I'm, I'm suddenly embarrassed. Right. Yeah, the mm -hmm. sudden embarrassment of childhood is something that is rarely experienced as an adult, I think. But one thing, I mean, Erica, it's so interesting what you said about why you got into YA, because I think this book uh, really touches on, I mean, I completely agree with you and Ryder that this is like emotional time travel, essentially. And to me, that is the only, that is the marker for me of children's books being good or not. Back to the plot thing. So mm -hmm. Todd, right before we uh, started recording, Todd was like, well, I knew it was going to happen. Um, and so did I. And to me, what really good middle grade and YA books do that I think is often lost from adult books is they understand the importance of plot. You know what I mean? 
They say we have to keep the kids turning the page, every page, every single page means something. No matter how well written it is, it must drive towards something. And I just really appreciate any YA book that that can both that can do both that can be as well written as this is and keep you moving forward. Is it in your opinion that books like this are primarily written for kids, but that the hope is that adults will read them and get something that the adult writer is putting into it? Um, you know, it's difficult to say. I mean. In terms of the lexicon, it's definitely directed at younger kids, but in terms of who it's actually meant for, um, I mean, what it, who is any story really meant for? It's meant for who comes across it and who appreciates it. There are going to be plenty of adults who can pick it up and really love it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of who don't. And I think that what makes this book really elegant is that I think there's there are parts in it that are just going to really be meaningful for the adults. I mean, I'm thinking specifically, for example, when um, when Miranda gives a sandwich to the laughing man, right? And her mom, who you know, kind of prides herself on being open-minded, you know, she goes and uh, talks to the pregnant jailbirds. Um, really kind of freaks out on her for doing this really nice thing. And that kind of adult, almost hypocrisy, um, but at the same time fearfulness, is something that probably most kids won't grasp as much as an adult who's walked around in an urban area and had, you know, dealt with mm-hmm. real life the stuff. crazy, yeah. right. the crazy uh-huh. laughing man on the corner. Um, mm-hmm. But... That's what, to me, is so beautiful about this book, so beautiful about his dark materials, is um, there's older wisdom hidden into sim- hidden in simple language. And there, it's the same reason that certain fairy tales and cert- all different specific stories really stick with younger kids as they grow older. They latch onto these kind of deeper but not quite explicit kind of wisdom of these stories and that's what makes them really matter yeah have you guys read the his dark materials is um the golden compass the subtle knife and the amber spyglass have you guys read this book i've only read the golden compass i saw the horrible terrible movie it was horrible yeah also really hard to masturbate to I, I hadn't had a masturbation <laughs> At least Erica left. We were so over it. It's a pity it. laugh. It's a pity laugh. That was time. for Erica. I, I didn't, that wasn't for you guys. That wasn't even for the. We're going to cut that. Well, actually, bringing up his dark materials is good because it goes to the point that I think I was trying to make originally, which Erica uh, cried foul at. And, and I still have it with this book, which is Is this really newly imaginative? This book, because what I miss, what I did think was in his dark materials and I do think was in Wrinkle in Time was the new imagination, like where the world was so weird and the concepts so out there that they blew my mind. And what I was saying about Harry Potter and Twilight is that they're derivative in terms of what they're actually about, vampires or uh, wizards and witches. They're actually very derivative. There's not a certain level of creativity and and unfortunately, as much as I did love this book, it didn't, it wasn't, it was time travel, which and it was very basic mm-hmm. time travel. It was sort of, you know, and it didn't have that, like, and, and the, also the fact that it kept referring to A Wrinkle in Time 
only further to me emphasize the poverty of the sort of newness of imagination in children's literature. But now, even in our discussion today, Erica, you talk about the books that the kids do gravitate to with the weird covers and the cat wars or whatever you're talking about. And, I, and that makes me feel like there's probably weirder, more surreal books out well, there. Well, you know, Ryder, I think that's an interesting point because what I kept experiencing while reading this book is exactly what you're talking about is I kept thinking, oh, I should really go read Wrinkle in Time, which blew my mind. Right. But so here's the thing. It's not... It, it's not like there's a paucity of idea here. I mean, there's, there's good stuff here, but it's the same thing that exists in in any fiction. I mean, how many novels or short story collections are about young people in New York trying to make it? You know, how many yeah. are about, you know, I just read a, a particularly good book called Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. And it's basically a book that, you know, is all about Hollywood, and it's the same Hollywood story that we've heard but a thousand I feel times. Like, but I feel like children's literature is one of the, the places where you can break any rule you want in terms of, like, you're not going to come to a child, as a kid especially, but even as an adult, you're not going to put the same pressures of realism on a book that you read. So it's actually a great playground for the imagination to really mm-hmm. explode outward, and that's something that, you know, I love about children's literature, and that I feel like it's sort of the last bastion in, in English letters uh, that for that, for somebody for somebody to really be out there and weird and, like, different and, and completely original and have different concepts of time travel. And I don't know, I haven't read Wrinkle in Time, unfortunately, but even just the references to it in this book, I was like, what? It's A really planet weird. where they're, like, bouncing balls all simultaneously? <laughs> it's so bizarre. And then I That's kept... probably the most normal part of the book, too, by the way. That's when you're like, whoo, this is a normal story again. <laughs> but His Dark Materials is a good example, because His Dark Materials versus Harry Potter. His Dark Materials, it has magic, it has spells, it has, but it has all this weird stuff with animal familiars and shared souls and yeah, I want to say, Ryder, you need to read the other two books because yeah, it gets as even weirder. A right? trio, as a trio, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna make a bold statement here, that they are the most original, imaginative work I have ever read. Yeah, of that level of richness. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But but they're also a deep and insane interpretation of Paradise Lost. So right. to Todd's point. It's not entirely original either, but there are some extremely odd ideas about physics involved mm-hmm. in them. But let's let Erica answer the question. Erica, what do you think? Is is it getting less original? No, I don't think so. Um, I think, all right, so with a book like When You Reach Me, which is something I chose more on the basis of quality writing than kind mm-hmm. of off-the-wall creativity. I mean, I think um, Julia at one point mentioned M.T. Anderson's book, Feed, Oh, yeah, is so weird and gets challenged because of its really non-standard use of English, where parents will be like, what is this? This book isn't even English. Why do you have this on your shelf? It's just like, it's totally just this freaky, weird imagining of the future that's terrifying because it's totally plausible. But some of the ideas that he has in it and the way he manipulates language, it's unlike anything I've ever read. Um, his Dark Materials, books like His Dark Materials and um, A Wrinkle in Time or Susan Cooper's Dark is Rising, like those are, I mean, classic children's fantasy. And I think books, fantas- fantastic books of that caliber really only come around once in a generation. Uh, so something that occurred to me during this book was that um, you know, the, the issues of class are really prominent in the book. And I think it's wonderfully inter- integrated. Uh 
But I, I had this feeling when I was reading it, I was like, oh, she, of course Miranda's poor. I feel like whenever I read books as a kid, the, the main characters were mm-hmm. poor. Is that true? Is that is that something? I mean, <laughs> I, I, seriously, I just find that interesting. Like, are, is, are the, is our protagonist... I mean, usually a protagonist is an underdog. But I wonder if, as a kid, I feel like I always read books about kids growing up in poverty. I never read books about kids growing That's up. That's such a good question. Yeah, them. it is a good question. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of. I'm sure there are plenty of children's books about wealthier people that I'm just brain. Well, there's um, what's her name in the who lives in the plaza, Eloise. Right. I, that's the first yeah. one I could think of, and that was of a different era. I was wondering if nowadays it's all of, I don't know. I, it was just something that occurred to me, this class issue. I feel like kids are always struggling with, with poverty and, or, you know, they have richer classmates or whatever, even if, even if they're happy with, with their life. Um, yeah, that, that's such a good question. Yeah, even, good in question. Like the, even in the Golden Compass, even where there's, like, basically a secret princess, right. which is another common thing. They're still secret. Right. You know, they're still like an orphan in some and way. Harry Potter. I mean, or... everybody's got, they're abandoned by somebody or they have no Kids money. Kids in Narnia are, are wealthy. Aren't they being Good abandoned one. by their parents and sent to their rich aunt or uncle? Yeah. Only for like the winter or something. They're basically like summering in a new place. They're super rich. Okay, so that's a good example. For children reading about some... A, a protagonist that is struggling in a world that is against them is very much, I mean, how kids view an adult world where mm-hmm. that is always the same. So I, I think maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's something that changes with the economy too. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it is generational. Here's what I think. I think that nobody recognizes themselves as the richest person. Right. I think that oh. everyone can always look to someone else who they think has more money. Ladies and gentlemen, let's I mean, slow clap it out for Julia Pistel. <laughs> <laughs> Once a podcast, I go for the. But I mean, I it's probably highlighted more in done. You done? <laughs> Erica had the last one, so yeah, she's she's done. <laughs> Uh, oh, she's feeling so at home now. You know, like, I mean, I remember this as a kid of feeling like, you know, like I grew up in a wealthy suburb and feeling like definitely not rich. And then I remember some of my friends who were, to me, quite obviously rich and then getting to that, like, weird age where you kind of, like, start to point it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, them being like, well, no, I'm not rich. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, I don't think... Even my richest friends would not identify with the rich kids in these books. Well, Sweet Valley you know High, I mean? there's the yeah. rich kids in that. Well, that's true. Well, so, we all know what we think of the quality of those. Books. Erica, in terms of the Sweet Valley High books, who's who's getting those? The hobos to masturbate with? Who, 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 who's checking, who out, checking the, out Sweet Valley is High? Sweet Valley High still being read as fervently as it was in our youth? Oh, good question. We don't really carry them in the library yes. where I work. <laughs> Let's slow clap it up for Erica. Let's yeah. slow clap it up for Erica. <laughs> Woo! Potentially also. I mean, for all I know, we could have them, but they're never on the shelf. I just never see them. Mm. Other than Sweet Valley Confidential, which is like her like release that just came out recently about the Sweet Valley people as adults. Oh, the reading list has been updated. I think we should oh, do it. Yeah. I think we should yeah, do we, it. I need to... I need to find out if they're still pinning date rapes on people. Erica, do you have any final thoughts on uh, middle grade and young adult literature? Um, I would say final thoughts. Okay. Um, You know, young adult children's literature, it's like any other age-based genre. There's this whole realm of different niches within 
each age group and well, it's hard to put YA. It's hard to put YA as a genre. Is the real point exactly. right? because you can't. Yeah. You can't. It's there's so many genres within it. But it is interesting that we as a culture separate it as a category. Like, why do we say? Because children's literature did not exist previous to the 20th century. There were books that had kids as protagonists. But the concept is it just a marketing consumerist mentality that it's right. like this book oh, is totally. made for kids and this book is made for adults. Because I, if you handed me this book. I would probably say, yeah, pretty direct, simple, clear language, but really just a killer book. I don't know if I would mm. necessarily be able to pinpoint the age group that it's for. Mm -hmm. uh, Whenever I think about differences between YA or children's or what to recommend to whom, um, when I was a teenager, I didn't read books for teens. I mean, I was reading like Dune and Jane right. Austen, and I read adult books by the time I was like 13 years old. Um, but that YA is actually relatively new as a marketing kind of ploy. Um, the Prince Award has only been around for about, you know, 10 or 11 years, which is like the teen equivalent of the Newberry, which has been around mm. for like almost 100 years. I oh, don't wow. even know. Classifying any book as being for a certain age is really only saying what one person thinks is appropriate for another age group to be reading. Um, whether that is reading level, whether that's subject matter. I mean, I know when I was 10 years old, I was reading Christopher Pike books and like giggling to myself because my mom didn't know about all the teenage sex I was reading. <laughs> it's, it's all like a very relative idea. Um, and it is very much marketing based, I think. Hey, Erica, thanks for selecting this book for us. It was yeah, fun to read. Yeah, this is a great book. Thank you so much for thank coming you. on. And thank you for vo being the voice of what I'm sure many, many, many listeners thought, which is... Ryder hey, Strong is fuck wrong. Fuck you, Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, You're welcome. You. And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. We'll be back in two weeks. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash literary disco and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. I'm Ryder Strong for Todd Goldberg and Julia Pastel saying thanks for listening. Yeah.